Hey everybody, welcome to the Muscle Intelligence Podcast. I'm Ben Pakulski. Today I'm going to interview Dr. Hector Lopez. Who's Dr. Hector Lopez? He's an extremely bright researcher um, in the area of supplements for performance, in the area of cognitive performance, in the area of CBD. Dr. Lopez and I discuss a lot of new and novel ingredients, uh, what actually works, what has research behind it. Dr. Noble Lopez, as you guys will hear, is incredibly well-versed when it comes to being up-to-date with the most current research. Um, there's very few people out there on the planet right now who are as fluid with the information that exists in this world uh, on understanding the pathways of, of function of nootropics, understanding the pathways of function of uh, performance optimization ingredients and supplementation. It's a really interesting conversation. Dr. Lopez, as you guys will hear, is super bright and does it and it teaches us in a very, very simple way that's really easy to understand and gives us a lot of very, very valuable nuggets. So this is a supplement conversation. If you're someone who takes supplements, if you're someone who's interested in performance supplements, particularly around your brain, uh, you guys know I have a fascination with brain optimization and nootropics. Uh, Dr. Lopez is a, a wealth of information. So we get into that as well as some unique and novel ingredients that he has patented that are coming out soon. Uh, some things like a unique type of beta alanine, a unique type of fish oil, uh, a caffeine analog, something that's parallel to caffeine. And we also get into talking a little bit about CBD and how it works and uh, whether or not you should be taking it. Enjoy the show with Dr. Hector Lopez. I want to give our guests, uh, our listeners, kind of an idea of what you're super excited about right now, because it seems like you've got your hand in a lot of really different cool things. The supplement industry is evolving, seems like it's evolving, evolving very quickly. Mm -hmm. And on the other hand, it seems like all the ingredients that are going to be found have been found. I could be completely wrong. Um, you know, it seems like there's a lot of people looking at novel delivery mechanisms, mm -hmm. but you're the guy who's kind of, you know, front line in the trenches. And I'm curious, what are you excited about? What should we be excited about? Yeah. So, so here's the thing, like I basically, what I like to tell people is, you know, my why, or, or at least the why from, you know, with the group that I'm working with, with Dr. Ziegenfuss, Tim Z, uh, as well as another partner of ours now, Ryan Yates, who's a molecular pharmacologist by training. He's a PharmD PhD. What we're doing is, is we're using all the learned knowledge that we come across on a day-to-day -day basis, right at, at the, at the CRO when we're doing clinical research for the industry. And we've actually pivoted and transitioned to using that as an incubator for novel findings, for discovering and, and bringing to market novel ingredients like you're probably right. familiar with, you know, theocrine. Uh, you know, we we did work initially with Hydromax or the glycerol was, was mm -hmm. born out of the lab. Some of the other things that have come out of the lab is uh, a new ingredient we'll be bringing to market called Carnoprime which is, it's kind of like priming beta alanine. Right. So we're going to be able to get bolus dosing of beta alanine in a very tolerable fashion uh, so that, you know, you're, we're almost going to be able to treat beta alanine the way that the old school folks would treat creatine monohydrate with that loading period instead of that long drawn out six to eight week period where you need to consume a total of about a hundred and 20 to 150 grams of beta alanine in order to get the ergogenic benefit. Um, we're going to be able to do it in seven days. And uh, so we're excited about that. Being able to dose beta alanine at like 20 grams a day. Uh, so that's going to be uh, coming so without, to market. Without the flushing effect, without exactly. the GI intolerance kind of stuff. Exactly. And not using the, there's a, the Carnosin SR currently, which is sort of that slow release. Uh, but that's limited to those big bulky tablets. With our technology, uh, you don't need to dilute the dose of beta alanine by 50%. Uh, you're using a nutraceutical blanket, if you will, to dampen down the uh, the itch receptor, uh, which you know used to be thought that it was uh, an NMDA receptor that would cause the tingling or the paresthesias. And what we found is it's actually an itch receptor. It's another G protein coupled receptor. And so we found a couple of nutraceutical grass ingredients. They're generally recognized as safe, uh, Dechet compliant. Um, and at, at a certain dose, at 10 to 30% of the dose of beta alanine, you're able to dial down the parasthetic effect and improve the tolerability uh, while really taking advantage of the pharmacodynamics of beta alanine 
in that it, it's because of the, the carnosine synthase enzyme is a zero order kinetics. The more you give, the more you make. So it's really just a matter of how much, how soon can you get to delivering that total dose, you know, that 150, right. 120 to 150 gram dose. So if you can do it in seven days, you know, with some of these athletes, for example, you know, they don't have the wherewithal or the, 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 you know, the schedule, the capacity to dose beta alanine three or four times a day for six to eight weeks on end. You know, if they're like MMA or UFC athletes, for example, you know, they're busy with so much coming at them. Uh, you know, it's, it's hard to keep them uh, on point with like a beta alanine supplementation schedule. So here you could get them at the beginning of training camp, hit them with 20 grams a day for a week, and then have them go through training camp. Maybe you can give them another uh, five to 10 grams a day the week before their, their bout, and they can go into their bout tr with truly, truly elevated levels of intramuscular carnosine. Um, that's just one example of how you could apply that. But the other example is just one of the reasons beta alanine hasn't gotten into the mass, like food drug mass, is because of the paresthesias even at, at the, at the yeah. lower doses, you know? So now we can yeah. deliver lower doses, uh, control the paresthesias. You, we can almost dial it up and dial it down depending on how much of the carnal prime you use along with the beta alanine. So that's exciting. Uh, omega-3, we have some new omega-3 IP that we're going to bring to market that's going to be, we feel is going to be disruptive to the industry and we're really excited about. So, Tell me about that. Uh, so what we're doing there is, if you really look at look at I I early on in my career right I was working with Nordic Naturals as as you know you and I have talked a lot about omega threes right uh, that's yep. actually something that always struck me about you is is you were really always a a cerebral bodybuilder in that you know you truly wanted to understand mechanisms and I really always admired that about you Ben so uh, but on the on the Nordic Natural side you know that's kind of how I cut my teeth officially in the industry. Yeah. And then I stepped away from the omega-3 world for a little bit, uh, got involved in uh, the endocannabinoid system a lot. Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm working on connecting the dots, if you will, between the endocannabinoid system, omega-3 uh, mechanisms. And then when you really take a look at all these meta-analyses, you know, I think often what happens is the industry wants to defend itself and say and poke holes at... Well, of course, you know, look at the dose they were using or, or they, they were using secondary prevention, not primary prevention or vice versa. And so you po you, it's easy to poke holes in meta-analyses. And as an advocate of the industry, I was doing that myself whenever, the, whenever a negative study right, was published on omega-3 or, or fish oil. But having taken a step back away from the industry... I felt like, uh, and, and there's more of that data coming out uh, that you even see at doses of, there was a recent study looking at two and a half grams of EPA and DHA on patients with type 2 diabetes who were obese, who also had fatty liver, who had uh, NASH or, or fatty liver disease. And the two and a half gram dose over a six to eight week period, uh, actually large, I'm sorry, over a 12 week period did nothing to improve their clinical outcomes, did nothing for their, hmm. um, did nothing for their, uh, their insulin sensitivity, did nothing for their fatty liver, although their omega-3 index went from like 6% to that magical 8 to 9%, uh, which is where we see a lot of the mortality and morbidity benefits. Um, but it did nothing for the primary outcomes, like what you, the reason you're taking the, the product for. And then right. when you couple that with all the made analyses, I've, we felt like there were some real limitations there. And so what we found is the limitation is it's related to a few things. Number one, it's, it's related to the, are you familiar with the, the FADS enzyme, the fatty acid desaturase elongase enzymes, FADS uh -huh. one, FADS two? So that's basically the, uh, that's the gene that uh, codes for an enzyme called D5D, delta-5 desaturase. This is the enzyme that essentially is responsible for, uh, for us converting the shorter chain polyunsaturated fatty acids, whether they're omega-3 or omega-6. These are the ones that are responsible for uh, elongating them and turning, for example, turning linoleic acid into arachidonic acid. Mm -hmm. 
or turning um, alpha uh, ALA or alpha-linolenic acid into EPA and then DHA. Uh, so, so part of what happens is, is that a lot of these studies haven't accounted for the genotype and haven't stratified for individuals' genotype. And it turns out that over half of Caucasians are, um, are slow metabolizers. The other half are hyper metabolizers of this, you know, this D5D enzymes, which means that if you give them a lot of, um, precursor omega-3, a lot of like flaxseed oil, for example, they'll go ahead and convert a lot of that because they're hyper metabolizers. They'll go ahead and convert a lot of that to, to EPA and DHA, which is great for overall PUFA metabolism, right? Yep. The problem is that in individuals of um, uh, uh, black uh, sub-Saharan African descent, they're, they're 80% of them are, uh, tend to be hyper metabolizers. But so you figure that's a good thing if you're surrounded, if you're in an environment where you're, you have access to a ton of um, higher omega-3 ALA rich foods. But if you take that individual and you take them out of that, you know, central sub-Saharan African diet or environment, you bring them into the Western world and you feed them a ton of vegetable oil, corn oil, safflower, you know, et cetera, soybean oil, they're going to convert a ton efficiently because they're hyper metabolizers. They'll take a lot of that omega-6, that linoleic acid, and they'll make a ton of arachidonic acid. So hence, you know, you sort of set, you're set up for a systemic hyper-inflammatory state. And, you know, that leads to everything from you know, more problems with metabolic syndrome, with obesity, with hmm. uh, type 2 diabetic complications, um, uh, and even neuroinflammation as well, which sure. can lead to mood disorder. Now we, we're finding out, right, that mood disorder is probably just as much a neuroinflammatory disease as it, as it is a quote-unquote neurotransmitter disease or phenomenon. Do you know what so, gene that is? So before you, you fads, know, what, yeah. So it's it's F A D, yeah. Fads, it's F A D S one and two genes, and they code for uh, delta five desaturase D five D. That's the main mm -hmm. enzyme that's responsible. So yeah. So if you don't if you don't have any ALA in your diet, you're still not right. So you need to still have enough of a pool there, sure. whether that's preformed EPA DHA or ALA. But here's here's the other limitation is that, um, and we're seeing a lot of this now with the, the form, the phospholipid form of DHA, for example, right? That's why people are, 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 are sort of promoting the use of like salmon roe or krill, the phospholipid uh, versions or forms of DHA. So, so we found that there, the limitation is not that you consume it in the phospholipid form, it's that you need to make sure that it's packaged correctly. So, so if once you once you you have enough of a pool of EPA and DHA and DPA, the, let's just call them the long chain omega threes. That's not enough because it needs to be packaged in a way so that when it's in the membrane, it's localized in an area where all those enzymes are going to cleave it and and allow it to participate. In, the, in all those downstream metabolites that are beneficial, right? All the prostaglandins and resolvins and protectins and maresins. So here's what's interesting. Individuals who have metabolic syndrome or have poor micronutrient status, they tend to package whatever EPA or DHA is in their pool. They package it in the phosphatidylethanolamine form or the PE form, not the phosphatidylcholine form. And it's actually, it's obligated that, that your DHA or EPA be in the phosphatidylcholine form in order for you to, um, in order for you to basically take advantage of metabolizing that EPA or that DHA downstream to get all those benefits, all those physio physiologic benefits. So RIP basically has found uh, through the use of some screening throughputs and some in vitro, some preclinical models, and now we're moving it into human clinical uh, with our colleague uh, Ryan Yates. Um, 
we also have access to some um, supercomputing and artificial intelligence that you put in some inputs and you get some really unique outputs that connect the dots in systems biology. And, uh, and so we were able to find some, um, some phytonutrients that can help to encourage not only improving the D5D issue, but also the packaging so priming the packaging of your omega-3s. So it's not enough to just difference? throw a bunch. In terms of, uh, oh, yes. Yeah, there which is a one, genetic component as well. In terms yeah. of how you package it, yeah, there is a, there's a genetic component, but it's not as strong as the, as the elongation, desaturation. Yeah, yeah, environmental enzymes. Those enzymes, the FADS1, uh, FADS2, D5D enzyme. So we're excited about that omega-3 IP. Uh, we cool. recently applied for, uh, we've, we've. How long before that comes out? That's, yeah, that, that one, the omega-3, we're probably Q1 of 2019, so pretty soon. Very we're cool. in the process of deciding who's going to be the, um, uh, I guess, the licensor, you know, who we're partnering with to bring it to market. Uh, I, I'll, I'll leave you with this last kind of IP on the IP side that we're excited about, is we, uh, we, we've sort semi-serendipitously come across uh, ingredients where we, when we were looking for neuro, like nootropic or cognitive, like with dynamine and theocrine, et cetera, we stumbled across uh, an interesting pattern that, that will impact longevity, wellness, um, and amplify uh, mitophagy, autophagy, some of these things that are, that and even potentially circadian biology as well. So this is the area that's really super exciting. Um, I think, I think there are a lot of individuals, experts uh, in the health and wellness space, probably such as yourself as well, who, are, who have recognized the value of, of you know, circadian rhythm, circadian biology, chrononutrition, you know, how, do you, how, how does the circadian rhythm impact when you should be uh, performing some of your activities, you know, obviously the impact of sleep. Um, and how do we kind of almost hack or amplify those signals so that we can do it easier or we can do it better? Uh, and then same thing with autophagy, mitophagy, uh, mitochondrial function, NAD metabolism. So we, we feel like we found a better way to impact those areas. It's really exciting stuff. So specifically working on mitochondria or what, what's the... Yeah, so... So we've got a triad. Uh, there's three ingredients that we have found that there's uh, synergy for, uh, I guess, maybe four main areas of, of aging and wellness and longevity. One is mitochondrial function and mitophagy. Another one is uh, NLRP3 inflammasome. Another right. one would be telomerase um, integrity or telomere integrity. Uh, and then finally, the um, downstream NAD metabolism, so metabolome. So that would be things like sirtuin, you know, global sirtuin function, like SIRT1 through SIRT7, uh, and even some of the other cool things that NAD is a, is a coenzyme for that helps with DNA repair and integrity. Um, so I think we're hitting, we're hitting some of the, like, the high leverage systems, if you will, right? That if you're looking for a way to optimize longevity and wellness, these are the pathways that, that you really want to be, those are, these are the switches that you want to be flipping, whether it's again, through, you know, your, your exercise routine, your diet, your lifestyle, uh, you know, what you're doing for mindset, meditation, um, sleep, uh, and then, and then using these nutraceutical um, sort of amplifiers, if you will, to amplify some of that that signaling. So, so you guys have just found a unique synergy between these three ingredients. Yeah, yeah, we're excited about that, and uh, and so um, yeah, so that's 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 probably going to be coming to coming online here also in Q1 of 2019. Um, and then the third company that 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 helps me stay in touch with what's happening in the industry is is the regulatory compliance, NutriVigilance. Uh, where we cover, now we've expanded. Before, we, we were only doing post-market safety surveillance, which basically means, um, you know, pharmacovigilance and pharma is the study of, um, of the, the safety of products once they're in the marketplace. So any adverse events, any consumer complaints, any serious adverse events that occur with a product, uh, they need to be captured in some way in order for you to know if there's, it was their problem with, 
the, the batch with manufacturing was there is there a problem with an ingredient that we didn't uh, that we may not have known pre-market maybe there's an interaction that we don't that we didn't understand was there so uh, that's my third company that really is I think gives us um, yeah, I'm really blessed and fortunate to have like this kind of little triad of, of uh, involvement in the industry because it kind of gives me a unique uh, perspective from the regulatory safety standpoint once products get to market. You know, we've reviewed over 400,000 adverse events and wow. product quality complaints from the industry. You know, we're doing it for a couple of dozen brands right now from, you know, very well-known sports nutrition all the way through you know, the sort of uh, life extension type wellness, health and wellness, uh, healthcare practitioner brands and everything in between. So that's, uh, that gives us a unique perspective, you know. So that's just something like a batch test and see what's in there and actually just quantifying the, the ingredients? No. So, so post-market safety surveillance is simply once, once your product, let's say you had a brand uh, and it goes to market, if you start receiving calls or complaints, which you're going to, right? It's it's right. an association. It's not causation. Um, that you know they took your product and ended up in the ER with palpitations or, or heart issues or nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, or severe headaches or um, you know allergic responses or reactions. We we take all that intake, all that in- information. We capture it. We put it into it, their respective buckets. You know whether it's an adverse event a non-serious or serious, or whether it's just a product quality complaint. And then we take those three buckets and we do, um, we do statistical like Bayesian analysis to see if there's a spike in a signal for a particular product that we can then link back to a, to a certain batch or a lot. And then we can interact with, again, like you were saying, you know, what, what, what actually went into that lot or that batch? Were there issues with the C of A's? Did they really not, did they switch out an ingredient, which man, you know, it happens more often than not sometimes for, especially generic ingredients, sometimes excipients as a contract manufacturer, you know, you're, you're in business. uh, And sometimes, you know, if, if you're, if you're trying to improve your margins and, and you're playing the long game and there's a commodity market out there, you might go long on a particular ingredient or on an excipient and and you kind of switch out what was being used before that might have been a branded ingredient or a branded version. And and sometimes when that happens, that can that can affect once it gets to market, right? You can pick that up post-market. Right. So that's post-market safety surveillance. And then we've expanded that to include pre-market. And the pre-market is that's where you're talking about the QA, QC, GMP to make sure that uh, that in fact you're meeting label claim, that you're manufacturing, that you're following MMRs, master manufacturing records, etc. Yeah. So that's that's the complete like pre to post market regulatory compliance that most brands should be um, they should be doing or they should be following. Uh, not all of them do because you know uh, sometimes uh, entrepreneurs want to bootstrap. Uh, a new brand and just come to market and there's a low barrier to entry sometimes. Right. So, uh, yeah. yeah. So, so between those three areas, yeah, that's, that's kind of what I'm doing. I know doing you there. can't talk about specific brands, but are there specific ingredients that, you know, maybe are commonplace that are coming back again and again as having become issues or is there things that we thought in the past would be efficacious and useful that we perhaps know now as being, uh, perhaps less than ideal? I can say the one that's, that I don't think is, you know, it's not necessarily going to put me into a scenario where, you know, cause as you can imagine, I'm, I'm sort of, uh, I'm I'm sort of like a, like a priest, you know, who's hearing confessions sometimes and, you know, uh, hearing everyone's darkest, deepest secrets. But I, I will tell you this, something that surprised me, uh, actually. And, uh, is that, is that oftentimes the combination of a probiotic, um, from various strains, not just the lactobacilli or not just the bacillus coagulans or something, uh, pr- combining probiotics with a protein in one product, that, that oftentimes ends up, you, we end up seeing a spike if a brand hadn't, didn't do that before, didn't have a probiotic in their protein, and they, they implement a prebiotic or probiotic to modulate the microbiome, you end up getting a spike in complaints, usually GI complaints. And, and so part of what's happening there is that 
some of these organisms are spore forming organisms and so when you you have them in a in a in a scenario where there's nutrition for them to actually um uh break out of their their spore and start germinating um they can they can sort of uh, increase your microbial counts a little bit uh that's one scenario uh water activity within the product um, so from a microbiome modulation standpoint, it's a little tricky because if you're going from a scenario where y- you've sort of been steady in your, in, your, in your diet and your microbiome, and now you alter it, uh, that, that transition can end up causing GI complaints, right? Sure. Um, and so some consumers aren't aware of that. And so that may end up causing a big spike in, in consumer complaints. And it just takes... Uh, so part of what our team does is there it, we're all healthcare practitioners with a background in in supplements and understanding uh, GMPs and the manufacturing process and understanding ingredients and their mechanisms and how they work. And so part of this um, ends up having us needing to reassure um, the consumer about what they might be experiencing and why. Uh, but sometimes it's a real issue like the like the former that I mentioned before. so. Um, you mentioned three areas there that are kind of hot buttons for myself and my demographic, or at least mm-hmm. earlier you did. So um, nootropics is a big one for us. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, mitochondria is a massive one, as you know. Mm-hmm. And CBD is another one that's cannab- mm-hmm. cannabinoids is a very, very interesting topic right now. I'd love for it to just like kind of walk through each of those, um, you know, starting with nootropics and saying um, maybe a few things you can about, um, you know, what ingredients are exciting. Obviously, we know theocrine is an exciting ingredient. Diamine is an exciting ingredient. Um, our listeners are, you know, obviously our, our BS radar goes off a lot cause there's so much out there and it'd be cool to hear from yourself. What is actually maybe the most uh, validated from a scientific perspective as far as, um, having clinical benefit. So, uh, so yeah, no, uh, so as far as nootropics, I mean, I like to break them up into, um, uh, into acute, uh, like neurocognitive acute um, sort of ingredients or ingredients are going to have a more in- impact acutely after consuming mm-hmm. the product versus um, versus a more more of a sustained chronic you know neuro restoration neuro repletion and even yeah. neuro resilience uh, uh, supplement protocol. So I think when when you look at it acute, um, if 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 you if you want to impact somebody's neurocognitive performance acutely, uh, you need to do a few things. I think you need to start with uh, attention, arousal, and focus, right? Mm-hmm. And so so then you look at ingredients that have been shown to impact attention, uh, attention, arousal, and and focus. And, and I think those are ingredients that typically operate along, um, along the uh, adenosinergic pathway, uh, along the uh, cholinergic pathway, and, and also even dopaminergic to some extent. Uh, dopaminergic mm-hmm. can be a little more mood motivation based, typically. Uh, so if you, if you can alter someone's uh, dopaminergic signaling, across various areas of the brain uh, with the basal ganglia talking to other areas in the, in the cortex and vice versa, um, you, can, you can impact motivation and mood. But uh, choline is a, a cholinergic, acetylcholine is obviously the main one to affect for uh, attentional focus and working memory. So some of the ones I like there are, I think, your, you know, your, your, your common ones, your, your common players, which would be things like alpha-GPC or CDP-choline or CD-choline. Um, and then you can also impact indirectly, you can impact cholinergic signaling by uh, using things like huperzine A, which actually impact the enzyme, right, acetylcholinesterase, the enzyme that breaks down acetylcholine. So, um, so I, I think those are your, your main players in terms of cholinergic responses, I would say, are um, alpha-GPC, CDP-choline, um, huperzine A, uh, again, through a different pathway, indirect. Another indirect pathway, probably things like bacopa, like bacopa manieri and the bacopa sides, as long as it's mm-hmm. standardized for bacopa sides. That that's, also that's influencing uh, choline? Yes, yeah. Also yeah. acetylcholinesterase inhibition, yeah. 
Um, Similar mechanism to huperzine. So I've yep, seen some yep. some data around huperzine that that suggests having a pretty poor long term effect, like as far as actually shutting down the enzyme, which c- could long term affect uh, silicone levels. But I haven't seen the same data on bacopa. But they are working very similarly. They are working very similarly. You know, often what happens here, Ben, is it's a, it's actually something we found, for example, with the with the methyl urate compounds like the theocrine and methylibrine that we're working with. Is, mm-hmm. is even though they also hit like the adenosine pathways, like caffeine, like methylxanthines do, they, they do it differently because how they interact with their target, like the whole, you know, um, ligand receptor or ligand um, uh, enzyme in, interaction, the structure activity relationships, they, they can work on the same pathway or on the same overall mechanism, but how they interact can affect if you're going to get down regulation of the enzyme or the receptor over time. So I've also seen and actually anecdotally observed similar things as what you mentioned with huperzine A. So I tend to be less, less of a fan, honestly, of huperzine A for that same reason. Uh, I think you're better off kind of providing more substrate for the cholinergic pathway. So the precursors, things like alpha-GPC or CDP choline, if I'm going yeah. to tickle, you know, tickle the cholinergic pathway, that's, that, that would be my preference as well. I think what ha- what's happening with Bacopa probably is um, I'd need to look at, you know, a little more of the potentially the molecular pharmacology or structural uh, biology aspects of it in terms of how it's interacting. It might be like an allosteric modulator of the enzyme, so it might not be it might not be as strongly inhibiting, competitively inhibiting the enzyme. It might be a non-competitive inhibition or, or you know, some other more subtle mechanism, which is what we're seeing is happening with theocrine. And we're actually doing some of these molecular um, kind of uh, uh, mechanistic studies right now, actually. Uh, and we're seeing some really cool things about how theocrine and methylibrine interact with the adenosine 2 receptor, A2A, uh, receptor and even the dopamine receptor differently than caffeine and why it's it's possibly responsible for why you don't get a lot of the the same sort of physiologic uh, responses, right? You don't get the habituation, uh, you don't get the withdrawal or discontinuation syndrome uh, the way you do with caffeine. So, so the same thing might be happening with Bacopa versus Huperzine A there, cholinergically. And then... Um, in terms of affecting arousal, um, you know, the, 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 obviously the one that people go to globally is caffeine, clearly. Um, uh, because adenosine is an interesting, uh, it's an interesting neurotransmitter system. Uh, you need adenosine because adenosine is actually part of what contributes to um, like mounting sleep pressure during the yeah. day and fatigue. Yep. So, so you do need adenosine, and adenosine has its own other functions that are important, both in the brain and even peripherally. Um, so you don't want to continuously block it, per se, uh, the way that you, you tend to do with caffeine. Caffeine is a very strong uh, antagonist of the adenosine A1 and A2 uh, receptors, A2A receptors. So, But it's an effective way to ramp up the arousal sleep-wake centers you know, in the arousal system. Um, the, uh, there's a, a part in the, in the CNS called the, uh, reticular activating, um, uh, formation and, and system, the RAS, RAF. And, and that's, that's an important, uh, system to improve arousal, especially in individuals who have been sleep deprived, uh, or might be, uh, uh, sort of experiencing neuro fatigue. And then in terms of some of the, the more chronic ingredients that I, that I like for nootropics, um, is actually, okay, so what are the other areas that are important? Well, you want to make sure that that membrane is, is healthy. So things like phosphatidylserine, things like EPA, DHA, omega-3 status. <clears throat> um, uh, and, then, and then you also have um, some repletion strategies like L-tyrosine to help replete uh, some of these these other important neurotransmitters uh, like norepinephrine uh, and like dopamine as well. Um, and then there's a couple of other pathways that I think are underutilized in nootropics currently because they're seen as more mood 
uh, based, but uh, there's a lot of crosstalk there, right? There's a lot of interplay between the mechanisms that can alter or affect mood and the, and the mechanisms that can alter and affect, um, uh, you know, cognitive function, working memory, executive function, et cetera, uh, thought processing. Um, and, and that would be those, those kind of mood modulators uh, would be things like, um, like 5-HTP, obviously, and serotonergic uh, pathways. Um, uh, but even, e even uh, other aspects of, of uh, mood modulation um, could include things like, um, have you heard of the mesembrine alkaloids? Uh, there's an ingredient called zembrin, for example. I think I actually just came across that last week. I'm not very familiar with it, though. Yeah, so... Um, uh, Zembrin is uh, is a uh, an ingredient from uh, Scalidium tortuosum is the is the botanical extract and it's it's rich in these mesembrine alkaloids and what they do is they tend to affect the um, phosphodiesterase enzymes and so the phosphodiesterase enzyme if you inhibit phosphodiesterase then it means you basically uh, amplify cyclic AMP and cyclic GMP signaling with what result well so cyclic amb and cyclic gmp uh depending on which phosphodiesterase subtype or enzyme that you um that you inhibit can actually amplify it's kind of downstream of for example once uh, serotonin interacts with this 5-ht1a or, or or two or three receptor when serotonin binds to the serotonin receptor um Downstream of that, you're going to have it's a G protein coupled res response, so you're going to have an increase or a decrease in cyclic AMP and cyclic GMP. And so these mesembrine alkaloids, by affecting those downstream um, compounds, those biochemical compounds, then you're also going to affect that signaling cascade, that signal transduction. So you can amplify serotonin. Um, neurotransmission, right? With with things like scalidium extract. Um, I think Zembrin is the uh, the um, one of the the branded ingredients that has been studied clinically. Yeah, I was talking to someone about that last week, and they were suggesting it for sleep. That's why I was curious. If it was just basically a mood and a calming type thing. So it can be right because um, so you know sleep is it's it's that's a whole other you know that's a pretty pretty sure. complex yeah. right yeah topic. Yeah. But but sleep requires this almost, I would call it like a symphony or an orchestra, right, of different neurotransmitters that are uh, being regulated, that are modulated, almost like a graphic equalizer, yeah. right? At different down. times. Right. right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right. So so I, I think one of the interesting things are, are ingredients that you would normally think could be activating or stimulating, like even cholinergics, for example, they've been associated with increases in lucid dreaming. And and probably in increasing REM states. Now, what does yeah. that what does that do to non-REM states? Right? Who knows? <laughs> sure. right, but, I've uh, actually tested it. So our mm -hmm. mutual friend um, Scott Hagerman suggested oh, me yeah. taking alpha GPC before bed, and I was like, okay, let's test it out. Um, I actually did notice more restful sleep. He, you know, he suggested there may be some type of growth hormone increase. I don't know that I saw any of that, but I, I definitely mm -hmm. did notice. Um, Potentially, you know, again, subjectively increased um, like quality, sleep. like and, restful, like sleep yeah, quality. Yeah, and, and I was mm -hmm. quantifying it with my uh, with my aura ring and trying to see if there was any, you know, significant statistical difference. And I don't know that I saw anything significant, but as far as perceived difference, mm -hmm. um, I was taking a lot though. I was taking about a gram before bed, which is a very high dose for for most people. Yeah. Um, but yes, yeah, so I took a gram in the morning, and gram before bed, and did that for about four weeks and. There was a difference, absolutely. So, um, but it wasn't affecting. I, I negative. I assumed it was going to negatively impact my sleep and keep me awake. Yeah, no, that that's interesting. You know, we we came across a similar scenario actually with uh, with theocrine. Um, is that uh, it can actually increase uh, sleep quality, but when you measure it using something called the Pittsburgh Sleep Index, uh, uh, Pittsburgh Sleep Index Quality Scale, or P Pittsburgh Sleep Quality Index, I'm sorry, PSQI. Uh, it's a very well-validated instrument, right? Measure of uh, sleep quality uh, and quantity, not just one versus the other. And, uh, and so we saw that with theocrine, that it was uh, almost, it was antithetical 
to it being a quote unquote stimulant. So it's not a classical stimulant because it could actually improve uh, sleep quality index scores as long as you take it far enough away from caffeine. Because if you take it with caffeine, okay. then it can actually increase the, the, um, the half-life of both caffeine and theocrine. So now you'll have both of them uh, for a longer period of time. And obviously caffeine would, could definitely disrupt in, in some individuals. Uh, can so disrupt. if I was to take theocrine on its own before bed, I would actually improve my sleep? Uh, that's what some of our data has suggested. Huh. Yep, yep. And actually there's one animal study um, that we didn't do. We didn't sponsor this animal study, but it, it actually looked at the sedative effects of theocrine when it was combined with phenobarbital. Now, phenobarbital is a very potent sedative, right? As you can imagine. So, so, but what it showed was compared to placebo or vehicle, when you added theocrine to phenobarbital, it actually increased, it decreased sleep latency and it increased uh, sleep duration. So, um, whereas caffeine actually did the opposite. Can we walk through the mechanism of theocrine so the audience knows? Because I mean, I've been using it for a long time, thanks to you. Oh, cool, um, cool. And I absolutely love it, man. You know, I'm a huge fan. Absolutely, still use it whenever I can get my hands on it. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I mean, great product. So, I, what I find though is there's a lot of products out there where it's you know mixed in with other stuff, and you know, myself being the mad scientist is I'm not often taking other. Um, multi combination, multi ingredient combinations, right? I'm usually kind of mixing up my own brew and um, you know doing what I need based on the scenario, right? I want a different co- concoction for working out compared to tra- compared to studying, compared to you know writing a novel or something, right? So yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. So I'm trying to find isolated ingredients, but I'd love to hear the, the pharmacology and pharmacokinetics of how that works. Yeah. So <clears throat> so theocrine, we we like to call it a, a neurobioactive um, compound. It's a it's 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 a it's in the family of uh, purine alkaloids. So if you look at like the chemistry of it, it looks very much like other purine alkaloids. So what are examples of other purine alkaloids that would be things like theobromine, like caffeine, right? Like uh, hypoxanthine. It's, it's sourced from chocolate, is it not? Yeah, you find you it. You can it find it. Yeah. yeah, we're we're actually doing a, a, a organic synthesis. Yeah, so we're synthesizing yeah. it. Um, it, only because it, it, it's, it's more cost effective that way. And also sure. gives us more control. Uh, it's like an active ingredient that we know is nature identical, but we can control the synthesis. So we know the inputs, we know the outputs as opposed to having the, the potential, you know, changes with, with harvesting and extracting from naturally occurring sources. And you've got sure. a, a slew of other compounds in there that solvents, I mean, right, yeah. right, right. So, um, and we have done that as well. And we have that available. It's just, uh, it's three times as expensive and, and more variable in its effects, right. From season to season in terms of harvesting, et cetera. Um, but, uh, but yeah, it's naturally occurring. It's naturally occurring in, uh, there's a, a fruit, called kupuasu, which is Theobroma grandiflorum. And so Theobroma is the same genus. They look like cocoa pods. So it looks like chocolate uh, mm-hmm. pods, right? And so when you when you crack these open, they've got this white sort of fleshy um, uh, substance inside these cocoa pods. And it's it, there's about 4 to 6% theocrine found there. Then there's another source called Camellia asamica cucha, it's a, a kucha tea that, that grows. It's a type of tea that grows in a, a certain region, a uh, certain elevation. Uh, it's it's uh, the Hunan region in, in China is known for using this kucha tea. And they, uh, they've they used it um, everywhere from uh, for, for things like uh, chronic fatigue to, you know, some traditional sort of health ailments, right? Uh, the flu, influenza. Um, some of the local area, uh, high school students and collegiate students use it for studying, et cetera. So they use the tea right. that also contains about the kucha tea. When you steep the tea, um, you could probably get anywhere between 60 to, uh, 65 to 70 milligrams of theocrine in a cup of, of kucha tea. So it's found in that tea leaf. Now, what's interesting is it's found along the same synthetic pathway within the plants, as, as you need in order to make caffeine or in order to make theobromine, which is also found in coffee and, and some uh, chocolate, uh, obviously cocoa uh, species. Uh, so it's in the same general family, 
But what people don't realize is to the untrained eye, if you look at the two molecules, like if you look at caffeine and you look at theocrine, they look very, very similar. But one is trimethylxanthine. It has three methyl groups and it's a xanthine. The other one is tetramethyluric acid, which means there's a fourth methyl group and it's a uric acid, which basically means the difference between uric acid and a xanthine is that the uric acid part of the molecule has an, uh, a ketone group, a carbonyl and oxygen group off the molecule. So you have one extra methyl group and an extra oxygen ketone group, which again, to the untrained eye, otherwise structurally it looks almost like the same compound. But those two differences can have an enormous impact on the pharmacodynamics of, the, of how the molecule works when you ingest it in the body, right? So, uh, and, we, and we, we've seen that. We've seen that uh, preclinically in animal studies. We've seen it in vitro. Uh, and then we also have seen it in all the human studies that have been published on theocrine, uh, as well as combinations of theocrine with caffeine. So one of the differences between theocrine and caffeine is while caffeine is a strong inhibitor of the adenosine uh, A1 and A2A receptors, the, uh, theocrine, what we have found, is, is likely not as a strong antagonist to those receptors. What it's likely doing is we feel like the interaction with the receptor is different because of those slight changes in the molecule. It changes the way that it interacts with the receptor. And what, it, what it's likely doing is modulating it slightly. So it might be um, changing the conformation of the receptor, but not completely knocking it out. And when you right. don't completely knock out a receptor, you still allow some of that signaling to take place. And that's why we feel like uh, one of the reasons why you don't get the palpitations, blood pressure, uh, um, hemodynamic responses, right? The cardiovascular responses that you get with caffeine. Uh, but one of the other things that that change in the molecule does is it allows it to act directly with the dopamine receptors, D1 and D2, whereas caffeine has an indirect effect on the dopamine receptors. So with theocrine, you've got more dopaminergic signaling to make it real simple, more dopaminergic and less of, a, of, an, of an, inhib an inhibition of the adenosine receptors. So that's where the difference lies between caffeine and theocrine, right. uh, that's so, just one of the differences, but yeah. To break it down for the listener, it's just going to make you feel a little bit better than caffeine. Yeah, caffeine a little more mood. More. Right, right. Right. Yeah, so a little more energy. So caffeine, more energetic, more activating, if you will. Um, and also uh, the, the, the kinetics are different, meaning it's going to be in and out within one to two hours, uh, sometimes three hours, depending on your genetics, right? The enzyme that actually breaks down caffeine. Uh, the cytochrome P450 genetics. But for theocrine, it's much smoother, slower tail. So it's going to take about two hours to even start reaching peak levels. It stays at a peak for about four to five hours and then a slow tail. So you can get up to six to nine hours of theocrine-based activity. And that's why initially some of the subjects would when we were doing some of the initial beta testing, they'd feel very subtle, like, wow, you know, I took the theocrine this morning and, and two hours into their day or into their drive, I'm like, I'm really productive. I've got a good mood. I feel good. I've got like, you know, I'm kind of on, you know, people would say like, I feel like I'm, I'm at my best. Uh, if they're doing, you know, work with spreadsheets or they're writing or manuscript writing or, or something like that. So, um, and, and that's, that's one of the reasons why it was, it's the difference in the kinetics. It's also the difference in the mechanisms. Uh, it also affects other neurotransmitters by itself. Also, we normally don't talk about this cause it gets really technical, but, uh, it also does a little bit of that phosphodiesterase inhibition. It also inhibits another enzyme called xanthine oxidase. So, because ironically enough, the, the xanthine oxidase is the enzyme that makes uric acid. So people who have gout tend to either be overproducers of uric acid or they're not excreting enough of their uric acid, right? Which comes from a, 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 a sources that are high in purine. If you've got a lot of tissue turnover, uh, you're, you're excreting a lot of uric acid. Uh, if you're consuming a diet that's, that's rich in purines, usually animal meats, organ meats uh, are usually high in purines. So people with 
with issues with uric acid metabolism tend to get gouty attacks. So uh, theocrine actually is a mild uh, sort of anti-uric uh, acid um, compound because it, it actually helps to slow down the enzyme that makes uric acid. One of the interesting things about that enzyme is that it's a very, it's what's called, a, it has a high oxidative burst and it's almost like a pro-inflammatory enzyme. So the more uric acid you're making, the process of making uric acid, it, it's highly oxidative, um, even though uric acid itself is is sort of a, a naturally occurring antioxidant. So it's interesting how that works. So it has anti-inflammatory uh, activity, theocrine does, much more than caffeine does. Um, uh, and it's doing some other cool things. So it, there's cool. actually an animal model showing the, have you seen that, that study where um, it actually shows neuroprotective benefit, uh, theocrine does? No, yeah. I didn't see that. Yeah, so I, I should send you that study. It's actually really cool yeah, in we'll an animal model. Yeah, yeah, it's uh, very cool. Love to see it. Yeah, so so there's there's other things. There are other things going on with theocrine beyond caffeine. Yeah, very cool, man. Definitely an exciting compound. Now I want to jump into a little bit of the, the uh, cannabinoid system, ah, talking yeah. about that because it's obviously the hot topic of discussion these days. <laughs> and yeah, uh, I mean everybody's jumping on the bandwagon, and I'm doing my research, I'm doing my due diligence. And, and to be honest, I know absolutely nothing about it, but I'm you know, relative to, to most people kind of diving into that world. So I can have a bit of a grasp as to what's going on. I'd love to kind of have you enlighten us on where your involvement is in that space now. And if you've seen any novel ingredients that combine well with, um, you know, CBD or, or influencing the endocannabinoid system. Yeah, it's, it's actually a, a fascinating system. So, um, so I got involved with the endocannabinoid. The first time I actually came across the endocannabinoid system was not in, you know, my nutritional biochemistry training. It wasn't necessarily in my medical training. It was in college in the bar. In the bar. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. That was my first uh, experience with the endocannabinoid system directly. But, uh, but even just academically, like it's not something we covered, right? Like 15, right. 20, 30 years ago, it's not something we covered. So, um, uh, but I actually came across it while I was working a lot in the omega-3 space. Uh, and the reason for it is because um, there's, there's crosstalk between your omega-3 status, omega-6 to omega-3 status, and your endocannabinoid tone. Um, uh, the reason being is that the very backbone of your endogenous cannabinoids are omega-3, omega-6, I'm sorry, omega-6 fatty acids. There are also omega-3-based endocannabinoids too that we're discovering now as well. So, um, so really the endocannabinoid system, just to back up very briefly, it's the culmination of, of you have a signal, the endocannabinoids themselves, you have receptors, the cannabinoid receptors, and then the other part of the system are the enzymes responsible for either synthesizing the cannabinoids or breaking them down. Now, you have CB1 and CB2 are the main receptors. Uh, THC or tetrahydrocannabinol obviously is very strong agonist to the CB1 receptor. And that's what gives people the altered sensorium, the high, essentially. And the CB2 receptor is found, and the CB1 is very uh, dense in, within the brain, within most of the regions of the brain, except for the brainstem, which is why... You, you really don't hear about um, fatal overdoses with cannabis is because you don't, you don't, it doesn't impact the cardiorespiratory centers in the brainstem, in the medulla. There are no CB1 receptors typically there. Um, CB2 receptors are mostly found in the immune system, and that's found throughout the entire body, including the microglia of the brain, which you can think of that as the immune system of the brain, right, effectively. Whenever there's yep. brain injury, the microglia gets activated, et cetera, et cetera. So um, now I came across um, hemp-derived phytocannabinoids uh, probably, I guess, going on five years ago now. Uh, one of my very good friends uh, from Nordic Naturals, Stu Tomp, uh, took a position as a VP of human nutrition at a company called CV Sciences or CVSI. So CV Sciences is the company that um, launched a brand called Plus CBD Oil. Uh, I think them and Charlotte's Web or CW Hemp are probably the two largest retailers in the U.S. 
of um, phytocannabinoid-rich hemp-derived products, things like CBD, but there, there's so many other compounds in what, what are known as full-spectrum hemp, uh, full uh, hemp extracts versus isolates. And I think there's a lot of confusion out there, Ben. Um, you know, there, there's just, there's so many products right now on the market. It's hard to know who to trust, uh, what the source is. Um, Absolutely. So I would, I would highly encourage consumers that want to experiment in this space to contact their, their brands and actually find out if their brand is, you know, have they done any toxicology studies on their actual ingredient, on their article of commerce? Uh, have they, are they sponsoring any human clinical trials? You know, we're currently doing a couple right now at our CRO. We're fortunate enough, uh, to be able to do that. Uh, we've done some preliminary pilot work already before that. And, um, and so, yeah, I think it's important to understand, you know, source, uh, potency extraction method. And then there's, there's different products for different purposes for different people. So sure. there's CBD isolate which is actually like the 99% plus isolated cannabidiol. Uh, usually it's a crystalline form in order to get it that isolated. Yep. CBD isolate is, is a very different product, completely different product than a full spectrum hemp extract that might only have 10 to 25%, for example, CBD by weight. And I think that's one of the biggest confusions that you see in the marketplace is people just they, they want to call everything that's a hemp-derived product or that has CBD on the label. Well, CBD is CBD no matter where it comes from. Uh, yes and no. Cannab cannabidiol is, is, sure, it is a, a unique, it has a unique, you know, chemical um, formula and molecular structure, etc. But even CBD, people don't realize CBD has two chiral carbons, two chiral centers, which means you can have up to four stereoisomers of CBD itself. And it, what's interesting is if you have a CBD isolate that's a synthetic, like it's, it's synthesized in the lab from petroleum sources versus an isolate that is extracted from a plant source, um, you end up having a different stereoisomer ratio or mix of the CBD. I didn't even know that was a thing. I didn't even know you could extract that from petroleum. That's interesting to know, and hopefully not too many companies are actually actively doing that. Yeah, Sounds well, like the reason thing. it's petroleum, you know, honestly, Ben, is because uh, the carbon source, like your starting material to, to yeah. basically make the ingredient is is a synthetic, right? right? So it's coming, right. it's petroleum-based carbon versus um and, and you could actually, there's a way to analyze it using like carbon 14, like uh, ratio, like isotope ratio right. testing to see it. Is right. this actually, is your 100% CBD product, is it from a natural botanical source or is it from a synthetic? And look, there might, there's a role for the synthetic as well in, in pharma potentially uh, and for other purposes. But uh, one of the interesting things about it is that the synthetic cannabidiol has a certain uh, stereoisomer. It's a negative. It's a minus minus CBD. It actually is an activator of the CB1 receptor. It has more binding affinity mm -hmm. to CB1, which is exactly the reason people usually take CBD is to try to not have the CB1 activation, right? And, right. and again, most consumers have no idea about that. Some brands, honestly, that are just getting into this space don't even understand. There's a lot yeah, of nuance. Totally. There's a lot of nuance. Yeah, there. I mean, Doc, so much incredible info, man. I got to come spend some some weeks or months at your lab and just dive into your brain there a little bit, man. Thank you so much. Um, I've got to wrap that. Uh, love to know where we can learn more from you. And uh, I want to promise that you're coming back really soon or, or that I can come down and shadow you in the lab. Yeah, no, I, I mean, we've got a lot to catch up on. It's been a while since we touched base, so I'm glad we were able to do it here. And oh, hey, man, I, so I, I apologize that I, I didn't realize that we were already on the first half of that. I thought we were just yeah. kind of catching up, but as a stream of consciousness, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> no, nah, man, you did. It was, that was incredible. So much information and all valuable, applicable info for our listeners, man. So yeah. again, uh, very, very grateful for your time. Yeah. So I'm, I'm, I'm basically, I don't do much social media. I'm on Twitter uh, occasionally. And, and then through my companies, through supplement safety solutions, there's a website and then the center for applied health sciences, there's a website. And then there's some other stuff coming with, 
the new IP company that 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 we have, where we're we're bringing all these new ingredients to market and leveraging um, artificial intelligence along with preclinical all the way through full stage clinical uh, testing, so that when we bring an ingredient to market, you know, we know that it's fully vetted. So, man, thank you so much. Cool. Thanks a lot, Ben. Thank you so much for tuning in to Muscle Intelligence. If you enjoyed today's episode, please be sure to share it with at least one person you know. Make sure you're subscribed so you never miss an episode. 